0: And that's our topic today is uh, to talk about inner healing Um, over in uh, 1st Corinthians, uh, the 12th chapter, you know, that's a familiar passage about gifts and uh, how the Holy Spirit has gifted the church and everybody in this house has a gift and you're either using it or you're not using it, but you do have a gift and it's not dependent on how good you perform or how much God thinks of you over somebody else. It's just the fact that you were born with a spiritual gift. Satan has tried to destroy it, minimize it, but you have a spiritual gift. And one of the gifts it talks about is the gift of healing, but it's the only one that is plural. It's gifts. Everything else is the gift of prophecy, the gift of discernment, the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation of tongues. But when you get to the healing one, it's gifts of healing. And one of the reasons it's gifts is because there are levels of healing. There's spiritual healing, there's physical healing, and there is inner healing. And some of you may have been gifted with that particular gift. One of the ways you know it is that people who have problems constantly come to you. And you just feel like every time you turn to talk to somebody before the conversation gets past two or three minutes, they're sharing their deepest things with you. And you're wondering, why do they do that to me? What, what, do I have a sign on me that says the psychiatrist is in? <laughs> and, uh, but it's because it's a, it's a gift and people are drawn to that gift. And a lot of times we really don't know what to do or how to identify it. And so I'm going to share with you some of those things today. Uh, but the book is in depth about not only what we're talking about, but also some things, key things, that we can do as ministers to minister healing in that gifts of, gifts of healing. Um, now, how many of you know that whenever you meet somebody, you're not really meeting the real person? Okay. Going back to your dating days... You remember meeting and going home and saying, Man, I think I found the man of my dreams. Six weeks later, I dumped that fool. (laughs) (laughs) Because what you met at first was the false self. We all have it. We all do it. None of us go in and shake hands with somebody and go, I really don't like the way you're dressed. Or I'm having a bad day. Or I'm grumpy or uh, I'm very emotional we don't do that we always bring our best to the front and that's just the way it is and so a lot of times when people come into the house of God they're bringing that false person up front and we greet them but we also know that there's a lot of hurts that have gone on in their life because they're human you can't be human and not be hurt and so there's things from minimal to maximum and so when they bring that in here a lot of times we buy the false front and miss the opportunity to minister and to wait now we don't want to see everybody coming in going hmm wonder what you're up to wonder what you've had happen to you that's not the way it is but we do understand that when they come in they're bringing their best to you and we greet them accordingly but we also prepare ourselves when the Holy Spirit begins to draw them to us to begin to prepare to minister to them. And not to be shocked when we find out certain things because we already know what we met the first time was not the real person. And thank God that when they feel that comfortable with us that they start to share with us as an opportunity. All right, so I want to take us to um, just a few things here. In Matthew chapter 19, uh, but in that story you remember that the young man comes to Jesus and he says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says to him, um, well, you must keep the commandments. And the young man responds back and says, I've kept them all since a youth. And what's amazing is Jesus doesn't call him out and say, no, you broke commandment three. You broke commandment six. He actually affirms that the young man has meticulously kept the Ten Commandments as best as he could and he turns to the young man he says but there's one thing thou lackest go sell everything you've got and follow me and the Bible says that he went away sorrowful and the focus is on that one thing that there is every human being has one thing that we're lacking one area that we're missing and one area that we must work on and so there is absolutely no perfect person out there in another instance in the book of Luke the young the dad brings his son to Jesus and in that story uh, he tells Jesus that the young man um, is demon possessed so Jesus looks at the young man and when he does the spirit causes that demonic spirit to manifest and the boy falls on the ground and he begins to grovel and, and uh, make growling noises all in front of Jesus and what happens is it's very unusual but Jesus instead of casting the devil out turns to the father and says how long has this been going on and the father begins to describe to him well since he was a youth it, it's happened ever since he was little and then the crowd begins to run towards Jesus and he doesn't have time anymore to do continue this conversation so he casts the devil out. But the point is, notice how Jesus does some diagnostics. He takes a moment to find out why this was happening. And the answer was, it happened in his youth, in his childhood. And one of the things that we're going to look at in this healing of damaged emotions is that most of the things that we're struggling with now happened in our childhood and so we're going to take a look at that because the um, issue is, is not going backwards to live there but to deal with it in the present so we can move on into a powerful future Alright, do we have some slides? Uh, oh, wow, Well, you're amazing Um, And this is uh, the first point healing extends beyond the physical even the spiritual but extends to the soul which is the seat of the mind and the emotions and uh, Let me just say this that when Jesus died on the cross He died for our sins Completely So but we've stopped there With the issue of spiritual that the spiritual life has been redeemed that our sins have been forgiven But that cross is a very powerful event that extends beyond just the forgiveness of our sins, that when Jesus said it is finished, he meant it was finished spirit, soul, and body, that the same thing that happened in his forgiveness of our sins also affected the healing for all of our diseases and also affected the healing of our inner man. So we're not asking for something else or creating a whole new theology. We're just looking at that cross event that everything listed here happened at the cross. In the second uh, phrase, uh, frame here. And here are, here are two confirmations. In Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. And then it's affirmed in the New Testament in 1 Peter 2 and 24, which essentially says the exact same thing. So all that happened on the cross was for our peace, which is an inner man issue, our healing, which is a physical issue, and our transgressions, which is our spiritual issues. And then Isaiah 61 and 1 the prophecy that Jesus would, would affirm in Luke 4 and 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and here is the ministry of the spirit that would come upon the Messiah, Jesus, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and freedom uh, or liberty to those who were in captivity. And then the bottom passages there for you to peruse, those are passages that affirm that ministry of healing the brokenhearted. it's it's amazing that <clears throat> people don't walk around telling you that they're broken hearted nor do they wear signs that says uh, by the way I'm damaged but their actions will tell you that sometimes they might be um, <clears throat> resentful about things angry at you for no reason they may uh, say uh, horrible things behind your back they may be gossips, they may be a number of things and if we focus on the action we miss the opportunity that what those are simply signs that something's damaged on the inside and they're reaching out for help so it's just like a child who's been hurt a lot of times they will lash out instead of allowing you to help and that's the same way we become as adults we don't really ask for help but we send signals out that may be negative things, uh, whether it's in our relationships or whether in in the house of God. And we need to be aware of that. That's that's where it comes in that we just don't need to be offended by certain things so easily, because it's not about you. It's about the person hurting and do not know how to tell you that they're hurting. And so they lash out in certain ways uh, with those things. Now, Here's what I want you to do, Uh, this will be a little activity, of how you get somebody started talking about their issues that they may have. So if you're trying to to work on yourself, or if you're trying to work with somebody, uh, normally when you sit down and say, hey, tell me about all your hurts, they're not going to do that. But if you do this activity, it can open the door uh, to them to begin to discuss areas that may be areas of hurt. So now on the very first page, you're going to draw. Okay, so if you're not a good artist, don't worry about it. Just draw it like you want to draw it. So on the first page, I want you to draw a house. Draw it any way you want to draw it. There's no right and there's no wrong. And then on the second page, those of you that might be quick, you're going to draw a tree. And then on the third, you're going to draw a person. So you've got a house on one page, a tree on the other, and a person on the third. So just take your time. Some of you like to put detail in it. Some of you are quick. It just doesn't really matter. It's important that you draw it the way you want to draw it. Now, normally, you know, there would be a lot of time for you to take care of that. So the interpretations that I'm going to give you about those may not exactly fit because you may have kind of rushed through it, Uh, but it's it's a way to get things started in talking. So here we go. The house. The house. Oh, let me back up a minute. You know there's a language in the soul that is different than the language we have in the physical. So the language of the soul speaks through dreams, speaks through art, speaks through um, music. It's, It's a different level of language. So when we ask somebody to draw certain things, even though we're conscious, it's our soul that's putting some things down that we're not even aware we're doing. So that's why I say now in depth, if we were to sit down in a, a therapeutic setting and take our time with this, we could talk about the, the thickness of the lines, the shallowness of the lines, the leaning, whatever it is, in more detail. But I'm just going to give you this for a starter. This is just for a starter. So you're not being therapeutized. There's nothing wrong with you. And if you hurried and you're worried, oh my God, there's some issues with me, It's don't worry about that. But the house represents your relationship with your mother. So if it's a large house, that means you had a very strong relationship with your mom or she was very dominant in your life. If there are lots of windows, that means she was open and transparent. If there's no windows or hardly any windows or they're way up, that means you couldn't really un- you, you couldn't really get to her in her feelings. Uh, if there's a front door missing <laughs> or the lack of a sidewalk <laughs> That means she was very difficult to approach because you were afraid of hurting her feelings. She may have had some damaged emotions herself and you were the caretaker for mama. (laughs) Now, if you happen to have a chimney and there's a lot of smoke coming out of it, then you got some real anger issues with mama. (laughs) a little smoke, that means it's the normal stuff that goes on between mom and child. No smoke might mean that she's either deceased or moved on. You don't have much connection with her at all because there's just no relationship at that level anymore. Okay? All right. I mean we could go into more depth we won't do that. <laughs> yeah. But do you see how that already started? I need to talk. <laughs> We're not done yet. We still have a tree. And the tree represents your relationship with your father. <laughs> now, normally, it's odd, but it's, it's true. In most drawings, you can't climb the tree in the picture because it's a straight-up trunk goes up into branches which means your father was very much unavailable emotionally. Which, you know, in some generations, that was just kind of the expectation. Mama took care of the kids, Daddy did the job, came home, smoked a pipe out on the back porch, and uh, went to bed, and that was it. <clears throat> that's, okay. But that's why sometimes those trees, when they're with the, the relating to the father, are so straight up, because you just can't, You want to climb the tree and be able to get up on those branches and all, but he wasn't available. Um, If the tree has leaves on it, then there was some kind, that means he's still alive. If there's leaves are gone and the tree looks dead, that means he's probably gone on. If there's a hole in it, there are some strong issues uh, between you and dad that have damaged you now if it has leaves on it and it's got a couple of apples hanging from it then that's a very fruitful relationship that he was it was a good relationship okay if roots are showing we need to talk Moving on to the third picture. (laughs) Now everybody's like holding their pictures real close to them earlier we were like look at this (laughs) what's he going to say about me because that picture is you (laughs) that is how you see yourself So if there are certain things missing, a nose, mouth, eyes, those type of things, then those are areas that whether you know it or not, your soul, your emotional area is, is saying this is an area that I have an issue with. So it, it could be being able to verbalize because of the way we were told, don't you dare say a word, you know, the secrecies in home. Um, it could be, you know, the, uh, the missing nose on, on the picture that has to do with self-esteem. That if it's missing, then you really don't see yourself as anybody worth anything. And so you might be living your life now through your children. And um, the size of the picture determines how you view yourself with the rest of the world. Um, the gender, if it's missing, we need to talk. So when, you're, when you're, you're talking to somebody and you really feel like the Holy Spirit has led them into your life or you're in the counseling ministry or whatever um, and you have them do this, you wouldn't do all three. You would just do one at a time because you see how they open doors up immediately of things that you can begin to, to address. And it's not to dig deep into what happened uh, because I'm not a big proponent of that myself because things that happened happened and uh, we can't go back and can't change it and also we have added some perception to it embellished it with with what others told us happened that may not have happened or things that we perceived and it's not really true so a lot of a lot of energy spent on back there that could be spent on right here but these type of pictures because i assure you it can go real deep with those pictures um, but it, the main thing is is to get the conversation started. So it's kind of like I was telling you with that story of Jesus that it's a diagnostic. It's just a door opener. I know Jesus knew exactly when this started because he's not only omnipotent to get rid of that demon, but he was omniscient in that he knows everything. So he already knew the answer to his own question. But what he needed was the person to verbalize it. And that's this part of this healing par- process is until you can verbalize it and start talking about it, you can never get past it uh, with yourself, with, um, in your life. Okay? Was that fun? Interesting? <clears throat> so don't share it with your husband or wife. <laughs> no, It's all right to do so. Um, in John chapter 9... Jesus passed by and saw a man who was born, uh, was blind from birth. And uh, I like the way this lays out because in this next verse, you see their paradigm of how the disciples in that day viewed disease and defects. And so the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So in in their day, if somebody had a defect, it was a result of somebody's sins. There was no option for physical deformities, genetic issues. It all had to do with sin. And so that was their view. So in that day, God helped anybody that might have had a deformity because the rest of the world would have looked at them with condemnation. But Jesus said... None, not this man nor his parents, but this, was, this person was born blind so that the works of God would be revealed in him, and I must work the works of him who sent me. And so he begins to, he spits on the ground, which is odd, makes clay and puts it into his eye sockets, and the man goes and washes, and he sees immediately. Now, what would you do if you came up and said, "Pastor, I've really had eye hurting," and <clears throat> spits into the ground, and you'd be like, "Ah," oh. but that's the only time you really see it happen because Jesus did the works of His Father. And the Father said, "This is how you do it," and do it, and so it had to do with submission and obedience uh, on Jesus's part in um, in the healing. But it also, uh, I think I may have shared this with you, but it also uh, manifests something about the person of Jesus because this is the sixth miracle in the book of John. If you go back to John 1 and you count the miracles, this is the sixth miracle. And what happened on the sixth day of creation? God made man out of what? The dust of the earth. So Jesus is showing them I'm going to put new eyeballs in his head from the same substance that I used before my birth to make you. And that's why the Pharisees got so upset because they caught it that he was claiming to be equal with God and the Creator. Everybody else was like focusing on the method. Man, I got to take this to church and try it. <laughs> Instead of recognizing what he was saying that the same God that put took the earth and created man is also taking the same earth and creating eyeballs in this man's head. Wow. But the issue is, it's not about trying to, to uh, point the finger of blame at somebody, more so of getting the healing to take place to glorify God, who is the one who died on the cross and his death Released us from all of those painful issues, even like in our emotions. Amen. Amen. So it's the ministry of of Christ. Um, all right. So we talked about um, the uh, areas of healing. On page two of your manual, it talks about First Thessalonians five twenty three, and that we know um, it'll be up here on the screen in a minute. First uh, Thessalonians five twenty three. And that it says he has sanctified us completely, spirit, soul, and body. And that's just to reiterate the fact that the work on the cross was an absolute complete work. Uh, There's nothing else that needs to be added to it. In fact, it points back to Psalms 103, where David says, bless the Lord, all my soul and all that is within me. And thank God for his benefits. And those are that he has healed all of my diseases. He's forgiven all of my sins. And that it's all. Which means there's nothing else left. So when Jesus saves you from your sin, you are completely saved, right? So we don't need to keep coming back saying, you know, I used to do this, I used to do that. Because God is confused when he looks at you. He's like used to do what so God's like who are you talking about and we're down here going please forgive me and he goes for what because you have been completely forgiven all of it is gone it's gone and it's the same with the healing in our physical body and healing in our soul that it's completely taken care of at the cross the issue is appropriation So we have an absolute work on the cross, but a lot of folks have not quite appropriated it into their life. So what we're doing is just connecting them. We're not bringing, we're not healing them. We're just bringing them to the understanding of what has absolutely taken place in the cross. And and when we catch that, that's going to be powerful that it's done. It's all finished. There's nothing else that needs to be added. In fact, Colossians says, and you are complete in Him. And the old adage is, is that if I had a jar here, let's say a mason jar, and I filled it up with all the way to the top with marbles, is it full? But then I could take some sand and pour the sand over it and shake it down until the sand fills all the crevices, and then I'd say, is it full now? Then I could take some water, and I could pour some water in there, and it would seep down in between the sand and the marbles, and I'll say, is it full now? And you'd say, it's absolutely full. You can't add anything else to it. That's the interpretation. Nothing else is needed. Absolutely, at the cross, everything that I needed was done. It's just a matter now of appropriating it Into my life and begin to understand that I don't need something else. There's no new spiritual pill out there. No new spiritual inoculation. What I need is just to understand what happened at the cross healed every area of my life. Hallelujah. On page three, there's a chart there that talks about the differences. If we can talk about spirit, soul and body. Um, I always hate to bring that up because it's almost like they're three separate parts, but they're so entwined together, that's who we are. And the Spirit is the God consciousness. That's what awakens under what's called justification. So here's a little theology for you. Justification. That has to do with your position with God. So justified means that the court in heaven has says you are just as if you'd never sinned. So the court, when you walk in there and the, the devil's there and says, well, this person here was a lowdown, this and that, this and that, and the judge looks and says, "Nope, they've never sinned. That's justified. So we can, we can honestly know that in the eyes of God, we are absolutely His sons, and He looks at us as if we've never sinned before. Then there's the area of the soul, which is yourself, your thinking, your emotions, which is what we're talking about here. And that, that word, the, the theological word for what the cross did is sanctification. Sanctification. So justification is putting us into a right position with God, as if we'd never sinned before. My ticket into heaven. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, absolutely taken care of by the cross to help us to live the Christ life while we're here on earth. Okay? That's the hard part. We're going to heaven, but we're here on earth for a while. And while we're here, we need to be healed healers. We need to tell the world he can heal you. Body, soul, spirit, spirit, soul, body. And that has to do with our thinking And all those verses that come up You know about have this mind that is in you That was in Christ Jesus Being transformed daily by the renewing of your mind All of that is sanctification Of the Holy Spirit working on you To help you Appropriate what happened on the cross So one diverge uh, I want to diverge for just a moment That is what the Holy Spirit does With us Is talks to us at different levels and one of those levels is sleep so remember soul the soul has a different language you just saw it happen on the drawing because you never said okay I'm gonna draw my relationship with my mother but you did and you're like wow how did that happen because your soul you see is is intertwined with the physical and it manifests itself in trying to speak in a language that we generally don't hear. And one of those languages is dreams. So when you have recurring dreams, those recurring dreams are, it is the Holy, your soul reaching out to the Holy Spirit to try to get some closure and healing to that issue. Whatever it might be, it's, that's, that's the voice. And a lot of times we we wake up and we don't want to go back to sleep because we're afraid we might visit that dream again. But the Holy Spirit ministers healing, sanctification while you sleep because the Holy Spirit's work is at at the subconscious level. You see, He works at a subconscious level. So, yes, he comes on us in the house of God, and that's why people fall in the Spirit. They literally pass out. And in that minute or two that it takes them to drop to the floor and lay there for a while, they're in another realm because the Holy Spirit has put your conscience out so he can work on your unconscious. And it's the same with the sleep issue, that if you sleep, and uh, that's why the devil robs you of your sleep. Okay, And then we cooperate with him. You know, we, you know we cooperate with the devil sometimes. We go ahead and eat after 9 o'clock at night. It's okay once in a while. I'm, I've done it. But when we do that, guess what your body has to do to that food? Yeah, because if not, it's going to rot and poison you. So then you lay down. And wonder why you can't get into deep sleep. Because your body knows, now you ain't going to sleep. I got to get rid of this food that you just ate. And then you get robbed of sleep. You might get seven hours of sleep, but you feel like you only got three. And the truth is you only got three. Because you got to drop into that deep sleep where the Holy Spirit can start to work. Or we watch terrible things at night. Spooky stuff. You know, the new one is The Walking Dead. That's crazy, creepy. <laughs> but then it disturbs us <clears throat> or any number of things that we cooperate with the enemy. And we don't even know we're doing it <clears throat> to minimize our sleep and minimize the opportunity to go deep into sleep. Because that's where the Holy Spirit does his work <clears throat> in sanctification, in the healing of our soul you with me so so part of the therapy is sleeping hallelujah don't you love to sleep how many of you think you need more yeah amen amen because that's where he works and and that's where you have these weird dreams sometimes they're just dreams and sometimes they're dreams because you know joseph had them uh, Mary, uh, several characters in the Bible the Holy Spirit spoke to people in dreams and uh, you know when they mean something then other times you wonder why you saw your Aunt Susie then you saw the mean third grade teacher and while you were trying to run you couldn't <clears throat> you know those dreams and, <laughs> and you wonder where did that come from was that God? No, that's just a compilation of everything you saw that day, your thoughts you saw or even saw it and didn't know you saw it, that the mind is just pulling stuff out that needs to get deleted. It's like a computer backing up. Your eyes are doing this while you're asleep. It's like a little mouse going and clicking on all these files and putting them together into a little movie. Then you drop into deep sleep and you see it and you wake up the next day and your mind is fresh. Now, if you go to sleep and you don't sleep well, you wake up and you can't think straight because you got all that garbage from yesterday still running around in your computer system that hasn't been deleted. Follow me? So it's very important. Sleep is a spiritual issue. It's part of the healing process. And so this work of the Holy Spirit is through Sleep So don't let the devil rob you of that because it sounds so natural, you know, and so so medical and science. But it's real spirit. It's spiritual. Because the word says he gives his beloved what? Yeah. And that's the physical part on that far side. And, of course, our bodies are important to us. Uh, that's why he's going to glorify them uh, in the end. And thank God. No more back aches. No more corns. No more. <laughs> Poor eyesight, you know, all that stuff. Hair falling out. It's going to all be glorified. And, you know, that's the last step of salvation. Now, although we are saved, we're still in the, in the process. And so it all ends when we get glorified. And when that trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise and they take on their new bodies and we go with them and our, we have these new bodies then it has been finished But it's so real That it's already done And we try to live it You know we go to the gym and run And then we come out of there going, man it ain't glorified yet I don't know why I went in there And did all that Now I'm going to have to take ibuprofen Take a hot shower Go see the chiropractor But we know it's coming So these are, these are three areas And these are three areas That God has absolutely Taken care of in the cross And so, but we're focusing our attention on the soul and uh, the self and the sanctification process. All right. Um, Down on the lower part of page three, it says the healing ministry. And in that second paragraph, it talks about the lawnmower ministry where most of what we do in the house of God is mow lawns. And so a few weeds pop up and people need a quick, counseling session with us and we go pray for them, give them some encouraging words and they go out and they feel better for about a week and a half and then they come back and then they keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back because all we're doing is mowing the lawn. But the word in uh, Jeremiah 6.14, if somebody can run to that or find that up here on the screen. um, Well, that's fabulous up there. you got some techie people in here. Um, Jeremiah 6, 14, and in that same book, Jeremiah 8 and 11. Somebody read that out loud. They have healed also the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So this this is part of what I said, the lawnmower um, ministry, that they're not really... Healing completely that we're just doing a slight job when it comes to healing. What about um, 8 and 11? And while you're typing all that into uh, Luke 3 9 Okay, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly there it is again slightly <clears throat> that we really haven't given people the whole story and uh, obviously in that day of Jeremiah, part of the reason that they did that is they wanted to keep people under control. See, and so if you, if you got full liberation, there's a chance that you don't need me anymore. And uh, that's an issue that, that a person may have as a counselor. That my neediness, my damaged emotion, needs you to need me. And the more you need me, even though I gripe about it, it empowers me. And, and sometimes that's what, that's what was happening In that day, they kept the people down. Um, But Luke four, Luke three and nine, and now also the axe—that's the kind of ministry we need. The axe ministry. (laughs) It hurts. It's painful, but it's necessary. And so this is at different levels that if, if, if there's an individual not bringing forth good fruit, that the Holy Spirit's going gonna to put the axe to it and uh, it'll be cast in the fire. But also in there is this axe ministry. And uh, you can see this over on page 12 in your manual because there's a picture of a tree. And you'll notice that in the tree, the the body of it outside, it talks about all of the symptoms uh, which have to do with aggressive reactions, um, skepticism, unbelief, swearing, foul language, or constantly foul language, argumentative, stubbornness. We've all had a little bit of stubbornness and defiance. But as an ongoing thing in our life, along with self-rejection symptoms, low self-esteem, inferiorities, not feeling like we're the same as everybody else, and then um, the things we do to counter rejection, and that is that we over we're performance based, we measure people by how you know what kind of work they do, um, withdraw from the crowd, being in the crowd but alone, jealousy, envy, arrogance—all of that. Those are all symptoms of something wrong uh, in the personality. But notice there's the roots and root causes of rejection. Some of it can be in the timing of conception and what that means is simply that you might not have been wanted you were unexpected. Oops. You what? You what? I thought... And so even though, you know, that, that dialogue goes on, Um, the more intense it is, the more impact it has on the child. Even though the baby is not even born yet, you realize that everything that goes on between mom and dad are impacting that child. And uh, in the mother's womb, how she feels about herself, what's going on between her and her relationship, whether she wants the child or not, uh, the manner of birth, Difficult birth, babies not bonded to mom, uh, can happen to adopted children. Uh, Number 10, the multiple causes in later life, abuse, self-rejection, problems caused by teachers and schoolmates. You know, some people got picked on really bad by schoolmates, rejected. You know, we, we all had that when we were in school, but some took it to a different level or suffered at a different level during school and same with teachers might even have joined in for some reason they had issues and took it out on you because you reminded them of somebody and uh, factors in the family home and hereditary rejection and these are all things that's the root and so a lot of times we're up here in the tree plucking out these negative fruits and then sending them on their way only to find out that the fruits keep coming back and so what we need is the axe the ministry. It's a little painful, and uh, it's a long process, but it has to happen in order for the person to have a whole new tree emerge with fruit. And uh, that has to do with that story of the fig tree, which we'll get to later, as to why that all happened there. I want to take us, st- since we talked about the timing of the birth and um, the womb issue and childhood issues, let me show you where this battle begins. And you're really blessed and, and uh, redeemed to have such a caring ministry for children. Because, uh, here we are, this is the origin and the slaughter of the innocent. And I put both of these issues up here because one is Old Testament and one is new. When Moses, the deliverer of the enslaved Jews, was born, Pharaoh did not want competition. So he ordered the slaughter of males three years and younger. And what, a, what an atrocity. And so any, child, any parent that had a young boy three years or younger, they were murdered. And uh, the blood was spilling across the empire because Pharaoh was afraid not understanding the revelation of what was meant by the deliverer. He thought it was someone that was going to take over his empire. So he thought the cure is kill the children. Kill the children, you destroy the future. They won't be able to take my empire. Matthew 2 and 16, 18, same thing happens. When Jesus, the deliverer of all mankind was, uh, from the slavery of sin, was born, Herod heard only the king of the Jews. So he was interpreting it that he was having some competition. When this child gets over, he's going to compete and try to take over my kingdom. So he orders the slaughtering of all males three years and younger. The exact same thing that happened in the old happens in the new. So, on a physical level, there is always an attack on the children. Always an attack of the children. And the same thing is happening and has been happening since the 70s and before that with the abortion issue. Just kill the children. Uh, just that, that gets rid of the problem. Um, here is the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan now, who has just affected the fall. And God is speaking now from this point forward, since the fall took place, going forward, there's going to be a fight between, there's going to be hatred between Satan and the woman. So if we were talking about uh, marriage and the duty of the male in the relationship, the male's... uh, one of his primary objectives and priorities is to protect his wife through prayer. Because notice the attack is not against the man, but it's against the woman. And everybody knows when mama's not happy, there's where it started. And then he takes it and says between your seed In her seed. Now we know that phrase. Her seed is uh, is obviously unusual because it should be his seed. But because it's a prophecy also about the uh, uh, the immaculate conception and uh, the virgin birth, then obviously they used the word her seed because it was a hidden prophecy to talk about she would conceive and there wouldn't be a man involved. And that's thousands of years before it took place. I, I was sometime. One time when I come again, I want to talk to you about the odds of the birth of Jesus being the Messiah and fulfilling every single one of the prophecies in his birth. There's, you can't even get those odds in the lottery. Now you have more of a chance of winning the lottery thirteen times than this than you would have of this happening. It's amazing. But that's the first prophecy about Jesus. But notice that the attack now, clearly the attack is going to be Satan against the seed. All right, the next phrase. Jesus' attitude towards the children is suffer the little children uh, to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of God. So that's a a very powerful verse about how Jesus views children. They are the kingdom of God. And if we go back one, uh, if you went back to Revelation uh, uh, 12, 2 through 4, that's the image there. It shows an image in the book of Revelation of the woman who's about to bear a child and the dragon. It's not a good image of the dragon, but it's Satan there waiting for that baby to be born so he could devour the baby. And there's various interpretations of that because of where it sits in Revelation, but in a past sense, it had to do with uh, Mary, the virgin Mary, and the virgin birth, and Satan trying his best to devour the child because that's why Herod, not knowing, did what he did because Satan was behind that Pushing him to make that decision to kill all those children with hopes of killing uh, the child Jesus And all of this together even if we filled in the gaps throughout the Old and New Testament would show us that the attack of Satan is focused on two individuals that is the, the mom the mother and the child now if 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 he can damage the mother then the bond that normally exists between a small child and the mother is damaged too and is transmitted in the transference of spirits to the child. Uh, But if he can't get the woman, then what happens is he attacks children, whether out on the playground, with words, classroom, in the home, any number of things, because here's what he's after. If he knows... That if he can damage a child as a baby or a young child, then we will carry that into our adulthood. And when we get ready to deploy ministry, that childhood issue will pull us back. We'll feel inadequate. We'll feel we have low self-esteem. We will not feel worthy. We will feel not complete. And therefore, we will shy away from getting into the ministry and doing what we should be doing with our gifts. But because of those damaged, painful events as children, we can't fully address them in wholeness as an adult. So the things that happened to us were spiritually initiated by the devil with with a goal of destroying our destiny and our purpose, and our gifts. And so one, when you have a, a lot of adults who have great giftings, but you can't get them to get into it, most of the time it's because there's damaged emotions, hurts, pains, unresolved issues, resentments, bitterness, that are keeping us tied down from manifesting completely what God wants us to do. So this is why it's so important that when we meet people, we're meeting them, remember, the false person up front, but we're also meeting somebody who has a tremendous gift God has given them, whom God has directed them into our ministry, and it now becomes our job to reach out with healing at the right time in order to move them into a deeper relationship amongst the people of God. You see, so when we recognize that, then we're not so quick to say, oh, you, we need you in this ministry. And then six weeks down the road, they're gone, uh, griping about everything because we miss the opportunity to heal and, and to, to recognize that they need healing. Okay, because this is a, kind of like a seminar, Are there any questions so far? Without you throwing your stuff out there. You know. <laughs> well, another couple. this happened to me when I was... Yeah. We don't want that. <laughs> but any insight that you've had uh, into this, okay? Is it making some sense? Yeah, and it's uh, there's, there's several ways that Satan does that and how a church can help. Um, number one, the children's ministry. And that's you have a, a very good one here. And it's just uh, uh, the word going in, making them memorize the word because the word... Transforms them, and even though it seems a little rote, pump that in them. Make them memorize scriptures constantly, because that will stick with them for the rest of their life, and it also shapes their mind and their thinking, and <clears throat> in it is powerful work. Uh, but parenting classes, a lot of pain comes from um, not understanding parenting, and uh, <clears throat> we make... Statements sometimes that I don't know if you ever said when you were growing up. I'll never be like my mom I'm not gonna be like her and then 20 years down the road You're saying something doing something and a little voice says, I thought you weren't gonna be like your mom <laughs> And we call those inner vows you see Uh, Going back, when we say something like that, you're making an inner vow that the devil uses to make it manifest later on. Judge not lest you be judged for which measure you measure it out, it will be measured back to you. So when I say I'm not going to be like my mom, I have just issued judgment on her and therefore it's going to bounce back on me. So the devil gets a legal right. It's on video. It's on video here. (laughs) Yeah, the devil gets a legal right. He can go into the court and say, I can hold them accountable and take them down that road because here's the date and time they said it. And because we didn't ask for forgiveness and get that issue taken care of between me and somebody else, he has that right. Because isn't that what the Lord's Prayer says? That... uh, Forgive those who have trespassed against me as I forgive them. It's based on a if-then. If I do this, they will do that. And so it has nothing to do with my justification. I'm still going to heaven, but my sanctification and my earthly life is profoundly affected by what comes out of my mouth or in my head. Yep, and uh, I'm not going to marry no lowdown like my daddy. 20 years down the road, (sighs) filing for divorce, mad, upset, need counseling, because who has he become? Your daddy, because you, and you didn't go around going, if you're like my daddy, please contact me. It's, it's that it's, (laughs) you get rid of that one, you find another one, this is it, this is the one. Five years down the road, you just like the last one I had. Because there's an inner vow. And you're locked in on it. And until you resolve that. And then what happens is, is that conflict comes down onto the children. And we lock them into a life of following the same pattern. Yes. So the basic way of resolving it is asking for repentance. Forgiveness which is really the core besides what a church can do what I can do is to make sure no stones left unturned and go and you know get things right and you know when you go to your mama and say mom I just want to ask for forgiveness oh don't worry honey you've been forgiven for a long time you know how mamas are but you got it out you said you got it out you don't have to tell her what you said because that might not be smart (laughs) you said what? So what you get, you forgiveness is very important. Even when you uh, have little fallouts or some things that you should have done didn't do, it's good to have that time when your prayer time between uh, husband and wife and children. You know that's why that Lord's Prayer is so important because you don't just pray it, but you also stop at certain points and say, "Forgive those," and I want to ask for forgiveness for such and such and such and such and do it, because that gives the enemy. An advantage against you if you don't. And you know, there's things that we're going to do we don't even know about. So, you know, we ask for forgiveness for sins of omission and commission and just to cover it all. But there's, those one, there's that one thing, just like that young man. There's that one thing. It's, it's depicted in your pictures. You probably focused right in on it when you were looking at it and said, "This boy, this is where some of this is coming from. That one thing. One thing thou lackest. It's the same thing when the disciples pulled him aside and said, why couldn't we cast that demon out of that boy? And he he said, one thing. It's that one thing. And so we ask, we find that one thing through the Holy Spirit. It's your soul is telling you in your dreams, in those out of the weirdness thoughts that just hit us, boom. Why would I think that? Uh, Or just the same issues that keep recurring. It could even be, in your physical body, because some sicknesses are a result of damaged emotions. Would your soul be considered the same as your subconscious? It's the same. it's the same. Thank you. It's the same. Yeah, the question was, could your soul be considered as the same as the subconscious? And the answer is there's the same. So the soul is the unconscious, subconscious part of our being. And we we speak verbally through the physical, but the thought and the intent is coming from deep inside. Now, sometimes when you say things, you go, why did I say that? That's your soul reaching out for, for help. And see, when we're listening and we have not quite yet overcome being offended, we get offended. And then we miss the opportunity. But we, we really have to reach a place where we, we're always going to have that area that we might get offended in. You know, you missed my birthday or something like that. But you've you got to get over being offended. And all I can tell you is when, when your offenses equal to what we did to Jesus on the cross, then you have a right to be offended. But until then, we do not have a right to be offended at all. Not one bit. Go throw your little tantrum and then come back. It's okay. Yes, No, you're right. There are two levels. There's some that you subconscious, you are consciously making a decision that that wasn't really a healthy thing, and you're going to work on not being like that, versus making a judgment call on them. And there's a difference between the two, and you'll know the difference because it will manifest, yeah, in you: anger, hostility, don't want to be around them, dread having to go see them. Those kind of things. Yeah, those are inner vows when we really pass judgment on them. So as adults, you know, one of the healthiest things you can do if your parents are still alive is go talk to them. And uh, just adult to adult and just don't tell them everything. (laughs) They'll be like, No! Not my baby! But, you know, just I need to clear the air with you. And just make sure that we're okay. And so that, means that in no instances do you have the right to hold anything against a person. Absolutely. No right. no right. And no reason. Because A, and this is a very good point, and, and, and I'm just kind of tagging on it now because this is deep what he just what Bishop just said is we do not have a right. To do any of these things because a we're not God and so the only one that has the right to judge another person is God and then he tagged a law in there and said but if you choose to do it you have just locked yourself into repeating it so it's a it's like a karma thing it's not a uh, it's not a judgment on your relationship going to heaven or not but it has to do with how healthy or unhealthy your life will be on earth now, I want to have the healthiest life I can possibly have <clears throat> uh, and live the kind of life that people look at and say, how do you stay so cool under pressure? And uh, you don't seem to get mad about nothing. And, you know, that, because those are beautiful questions to say, well, let me tell you about Jesus and go right into that. We become testimonies. But we do not have the right to, A, be offended because I'm telling you, look at the things he went through on the cross Did he deserve any of that? But he got it because of us. And so we offended him. And until our offenses of what people do to us equal that, we do not have a right to be offended at all. Now, you can protect yourself. You understand? I'm not saying be a doormat and let people run over you. You can draw the line in the sand and say, listen, you know, you have a right to your opinion, but it's affecting me, and at this point I need you to stop. And uh, in some cases, it might be as drastic as having to take legal action, but there's a difference between turning it around with revenge and resentment and bitterness. And we just have to be real careful there, because if not, we end up making an inner vow, and then we eat it for supper. Yes, ma'am. Yes, um, it's it's ongoing. Um, Daddy was rejected by his dad and it becomes a pattern to every generation. And so um, in some cases it might be, which, which is more happening more within our time, uh, if your generation before had racial issues and then all of a sudden your daughter or your son married opposite of a race and had children, that parent may reject because of hereditary uh, issues of things that they were taught, and that can damage that individual and can affect the child unless, of course, you know, the child feels it. It's the same with even if it's not that. It could be that they wanted a daughter but got a son. And I know that probably is very minimal, but there are cases, believe it or not, where the father hated the child because he wanted a boy and got a girl, or mama wanted a Girl and got a boy, and those are issues that can impact. Does that make any sense? Yeah, and it just goes generation to generation. If you make a judgment on a person, is it important for you to go to that person, or if you realize do you've done it, and you ask forgiveness of God? I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how do you correct. Very good. Made a Very good. It has to do with. um The leading of the Holy Spirit on that one because by going to somebody and telling them you may open up a door for them and so you have to be sensitive to it most of the time personally I would just ask the Lord for forgiveness uh, but if I didn't verbalize it to them then I don't really need to go back to them but I can ask for forgiveness and there's some things you all realize that you don't need to share Okay, so don't run out of here and go, honey. I need to tell you something. <laughs> because there's some things back there where they need to be left back there under the blood of Jesus. <laughs> under the blood. That's not who I am anymore. So what happens when you pull others into your judgment? Offense. When you pull others into your oh. <laughs> yeah, you got a mess. Because now you have to go back and restore those, those issues. You need to go back to the others and say, I was very wrong for what I did. It's much easier to just stay out of everybody's mess. You know, it really is. It's much easier just to focus on yourself. But you're absolutely right, because once you open that door up with them, you've got to close it again. And so, you know, whether you just go to them individually and say, you know what, I told you I was really out of line. Now that becomes very powerful for the, for the Holy Spirit to minister to them too. And also shows a little bit of Jesus coming out of you. Yeah. But uh, it's better just to keep yeah. yeah. So with that example, would that be your brethren? Yep. Gossiping, backbiting. Which you notice, you know, are all mm, devastating in the church. Uh, according to Corinthians, Paul calls them out because it does. It damages the church. And, and you realize if it's coming from a childhood issue here that I've never measured up, you know, my, I keep hearing those words of my parents saying, you're no good, you, you, you did this, you're, you're a bad child. Then what happens is it sets me on a course to where I have to make other people look bad so that I feel better about myself. And that's what, where it generally is coming from. If I don't feel good about me, I'm certainly going to try to put you down so you don't look as good as they think you are. The words are powerful. What did Proverbs say? Death and life. Yeah. And that's, that's true with parenting. You know, part of that parenting issue with the church ministry is teaching us how to speak to our children. You know, because we, we sometimes forget that of how we word things. So if I said, let me give you an example. If I said, and I want you to interpret this sentence for me, the duck is ready to eat. What does it mean to you? The duck is ready to eat. The duck's hungry, okay. How many of you heard that, the duck's hungry? Is there another interpretation of that? Mama's done roasted the duck and we're ready to eat the duck. Right? So you have one sentence, two interpretations. Right? And so communication is like that. Every time we open our mouth and speak, it is now subject to at least two interpretations. If I say the police shot the man with the bananas. He shot him with a banana? banana. Or the guy that was carrying the bananas, okay? (laughs) Every sentence has two meanings. (laughs) And we have to be very careful with our words because it's a spiritual level too. You know, I don't want to make everything spiritual but it is spiritual in the way we word things and how the other person is interpreting what we just said. And as parents, Sometimes we bring the frustrations of work into the house and we respond to a child accordingly. They hear something entirely different and it begins to seep down into their emotions because of how they're interpreting it. You know, So we have to be clear on how we speak. Think a lot about what we're going to say before we say it. Um, <clears throat> y'all know my daughter Rachel, that the oldest daughter's always the one that trains you as a parent. You feel bad for the next one because I got this down now. The third one, you ain't getting away with nothing. But one evening she wanted to go out with her, over to her friend's house. It was just down the street there. And she was uh, 13, and it was okay, getting about that time that a little freedom could be given. And I knew the family and all. And uh, she said, OK, Dad, I'm going. And I said, all right, don't be home late. Uh-oh. I forgot to do what? <laughs> to define late. <laughs> so of course, I was upset. But I couldn't be upset because I had a deletion, right? And I should have said, be home by. But I learned that, okay? So you got one, Rachel. (laughs) But words are very, very powerful. And how we say things and what we say is important. There's another um, thing here while we're on it, on page 19 and 20 it's a little technical here because it's called the individual life cycle, but I included it in this book because we we at least need to know as parents or when we're instructing parents that there are life cycle stages that everybody goes through. Everybody goes through these stages. And that in these stages we have to learn um, as parents to meet that need that that child has or else they get stuck there. So notice in infancy, zero to one, the issue they're dealing with is trust versus mistrust. So as we come up in later in life, if we have trust issues, now there's, there's certain areas, don't be vulnerable and be trusting of everybody. But you know, there's some people that don't trust nobody. And they're always suspicious of everything. <clears throat> and uh, they, they can't even trust really God sometimes. I say that, you know, minimally, because there are people that just can't quite like, "I know God can do it, but there's a little mistrust there. We learn to either trust or mistrust in zero to one. Now how do we mistrust when parents don't feed us? on a regular basis. You see when it becomes convenient for the parent to feed us and we're crying and hungry and then cry ourselves to sleep hungry and wake up hungry then and it it might have been that the parent had some at that time in their life some addiction uh, or or some issues and it damaged that child. Now they've grown up to be an adult and they're coming in the house of God and they can't trust and it might be going all the way back to zero to one when all they needed was a bottle on time. So, but when we train parents in the house of God, uh, I have to agree, I don't agree with Sigmund Freud much, but I do agree with him that the three things parents need to do with infants on a regular basis is feeding, toileting, and sleeping. That those three areas there. You must have a routine for those children that they go to bed by 8 or whatever time you decide and whether they want to sleep or not, they're in bed at that time. They eat at a regular time and we train them to the soiling issue because believe it or not, he was right. If those things don't get on a regular routine, they affect our work habits. As adults and create eating disorders you see because it all goes back to even though that psychology theology preceded psychology psychology emerged from theology in fact Freud and Rogers and um, Skinner were all Jewish so they had a training in the Old Testament they already knew these principles and just turned it into a science but it's all theology and those are issues that are 0 to 1 that can cause trust or mistrust. So if I if I'm in that range and I don't learn to trust the significant adult in my life, then I will be stuck there in that area and will mistrust from that point forward. Okay? Toddlers 2 to 3, they are autonomy and shame and doubt. So here's where they're learning to do what? Walk Talk, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're, and where do they learn to talk? What do they learn to words to say? And the TV. And the little daycare. You know, that's who we blame, it's that daycare, it's that one kid over at the daycare, not my child. I knew it, they need to get that kid out of there. But at that age, you see, they're learning now how to walk, how to talk. So they're trying their wings. So, of course, sometimes they may let a word fly that don't need to be in the house. How we react to that, you see, can be shameful or building their autonomy. So how I say now, you know, these are words that are not appropriate. We have to realize they don't know what we know. they just repeating something they heard. (laughs) And so, this is is an inappropriate word. We're not going to use that word anymore. But if we shame, that's filthy, dirty, coming out of your mouth. You're a dirty child. You see, there's a difference. So if I'm shaming, then what's going to happen is when they grow up, they might have got past the trust, mistrust, but now they're going to grow up with this shame, toxic shame on the inside, that they're not good enough, that something's wrong with me, And uh, I'm never going to be accepted. So that's in that stage there. So we understand that we do need to, the toddlers two and three do need to try their wings. And we're there to make sure that they do the right thing. And when they do the wrong thing, we give them instruction. Now, if they keep repeating it, now we have to administer the right hand of fellowship to the seat of (laughs) intellect. Yeah. But there's a difference. You notice there, when when a child learns to say, I am no good, that's shame. And that we don't need that. What we need is to know what was wrong. What you did was wrong. What you said was wrong. You are okay. But what you said, and here's how we're going to fix it. Uh, Then four to six, initiative versus guilt. Kind of at that point, you know, this is where we as parents try to manipulate and use guilt And we don't want to do that. We just need to have assertiveness. I am the parent. Believe it or not, a lot of parents need to hear that. You are the parent. Be the parent. Don't be your child's best friend. You're not the older sister. (sighs) I've had to have that talk a few times with my children. First of all, who told you I was your friend? I am your father. And I will always be your father. Now we can be friendly, but I am your father. And I will continue to be your father. I don't need they're like, I don't like you. I don't need you to like me. I like myself. And you are gonna do right. Because this is more important than what you've been told at school. So all right, so that's in that childhood. That's where we're teaching parents that it's okay to be the parent. You don't need your child to like you. Because, honey, they're going to tell you 100 times from here to about 20-something that they hate you. They don't mean it. They're still home. They're still coming to the table and eating. <laughs> so we're Okay the school years, 7 to 12, this is on the verge of disaster because once they hit that 12 and a half to 13, things are going to change drastically. But remember, Satan's in the dark lurking, waiting for that moment that he can swoop in and and damage them through us sometimes. Uh, But industry versus inferiority. Children learn that activities pay off. So now all of a sudden, take the garbage out. How much are you going to pay me? And you're like... uh, Excuse me? You eat here, the roof's over your head, clothes on your body, you know, the lecture. But what what we understand is it's okay for them to, you know, they need to understand that's not how you talk to your parents. But I I know now you have entered into a time where you probably should be getting an allowance. So first of all, I'm not going to be muscled by you to pay you for anything. But as your parent, I'm going to create a design because I know what phase you're in and I need to help you with initiative. So I'm going to give you an allowance and these are the list of things that you have to accomplish to get your allowance. I ain't paying you for nothing. <laughs> okay, so this is a point in time. Some of you started allowances earlier. You noticed the little ones that hey, could care less, you know, but when they get to this age, it becomes important to them. So what we want to do is strengthen their initiative to understand that the way you earn is by good work. And so if you do the good work, you will get the payoff. So uh, we help them with that. And then, of course, now they move into that phase where I wish we could freeze them, (laughs) but we can't. And this is where they're learning their own identity, the person they're going to be. Versus diffusion of roles that they don't really know who they are or what role they play in the house So at this point, they're really trying to emerge as an adult But they've never Done that before so they they start to get their own identity all those cute clothes that they you bought them that match Their brother or their sister that ain't happening no more <laughs> They might want to dress a little different than what you, you know they're always you know I want to be my own person but really they just look like everybody else at school but that's okay I don't want to discourage that uh, there's certain things you're not gonna wear but then there needs to be some leverage that it might not fit in our paradigm but is it gonna be disrespectful maybe not you know it's okay there's some things we can relax on same way with the way they um, are gonna talk you know, and you know, somebody's whoo, going through it right now. <laughs> and so, what I would tell a parent at this point is of course, you have to maintain and don't start drinking <laughs> and don't start beating yourself over the head that you got a weird one because they're all going through it. You see, even though the little kid down the street, the parent says, I don't have any trouble out of my baby. Trust me, they are passive. <laughs> it is happening. You, they just know how to work you. Okay, so I would rather have one come aggressively than one passively. The aggressive, I can redirect. The ag- passive, I may totally miss and say, My baby's so good. I don't know why yours is going... It'll happen. Because it's a stage. That's what my mama used to say, go to a stage. In this stage now, here's what I would tell a parent. Your home is the laboratory. Your home is the laboratory for your child to figure out how he or she's becoming an adult. And it's rough for them because they they don't know what to do. They don't want to listen to you, but at the same time, they've got to listen to you. So what they do is they act out in the home Because if they do it at school, they're going to get kicked out. If they do it with their peers, they're going to be left out. If they do it out in the community, they might be hooked up, (laughs) beat up. So the only place they really have to try it out is in the home. Now, I will not tolerate some of those things just as you won't. But they also know that the only place they can act out and still be loved is the home, because you know you say, but well, just pack your bags. And soon, if they try it, you down the street looking for them. Come on home, honey. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it. You know, you know they'll be back here in a few minutes, and uh, they, I forgot something. They go back in the room, and they're there. That sort of thing. But see, that's the home is the laboratory, so it's going to happen there. And what I do as a parent is I have to understand they do need to grow up at this point. So now if I have damaged emotions and I've been living through them, then what I'm going to do is start caving in and catering to them in order to maintain my self-esteem instead of drawing the boundaries and saying, this is what you can and cannot do. Now parenting takes on a whole different aspect now at this point because before that I would just tell them this is what you're going to do. But I don't want to give that up yet as a parent because I know they don't have the skills to make the right decisions. So now what I'm going to do as a parent is I'm going to readjust and I'm going to give them options. My options of what they can do, but they get to choose one of them. And then at that point you see you're encouraging that initiative but you're also protecting them from the foolishness that comes with their age. See, so if I'm if I'm inept at that, and I begin to see, okay, they're in this period of time, then I need to encourage it because I don't want them to be living with me in their thirties, <sighs> where well, they can't make it out there because they don't know how to make it, because I've kept them as a baby their whole time. I want them to go eighteen, Sarah, Nara. <laughs> I'll give you your options, <laughs> but. Uh, but I, I, I want them to be able to be productive when they go out there. At the same time, I don't want them to be disrespectful. So at that point, we teach those skills. That First of all, don't be, don't be so shocked. The home is the laboratory. Number two, look at your discipline tactics and start to make some changes where you can, but make sure you maintain control because you are the parent at this point. But make the changes that need to be made. Where can you give in and not compromise your morals and values? And at the same other time, understand options, that you are in control of the options. Give the child those options, let them make a choice, and then support them in that. Uh, If you don't make the options, they will. You have already learned that. They make their own options. You're like, where would you get that from? Technically, because you didn't give me any, so I just made my own. <laughs> so we need to make options. We Think ahead uh, to them. So when when it comes down to clothing, then, yeah, I know you want to be your own identity. So what we're going to do is you have three choices of these shops. Which one do you want to go to? You see? So they get a choice, but we're not going to that one place where, you know... Look like you need a pimp, or you are a pimp. You know, one of the, we're not doing that. You know, we're going here, and you get to choose from that. Or I'll let you give me three choices, and I'll pick two of them, and then we'll go to that. You know, All right, and then, of course, uh, that launching uh, into the young adulthood, intima- intimacy versus isolation. They're leaving at this point, beginning to leave the home, or even if they're in the home, uh, they're not really home they're just using it because they haven't got the finances yet or they're saving up money to purchase a home uh, and I keep saying when are you going to get enough money? <laughs> yeah, you're eating all my food here <clears throat> and so they are um, also you know, creating decisions about marriage and, and uh, friendships that will be uh, lasting And so we just encourage them there alright so that's, that's kind of what we would do with uh, parenting um, with, as a tactic for healing uh, damaged emotions. So this kind of g- helping, give a, giving you kind of a bird's eye view of where it comes from and how we can to work together as a ministry. Because really the, the whole issue now in our generation is the church, is. it's always been the solution with Jesus. But it's becoming more and more prevalent as agencies outside of the church are failing miserably. Miserably, And, you know, thank God they were there, but their time has come and gone. Um, police officers are, you know, at their wits' ends, fire departments, city officials. Everybody's confused as to what's going on and how it can change. And this is where we um, can step into the gap. We've always been there, but they haven't looked at us as a people other than just we worship and preach and move on. But we, this is a real time that we can actually impact in um, page 8 just a couple of the scriptures here Jeremiah 30 and 17 uh, the father cares for the inner infirmities of his people and um, the one I want to point out if you want to throw it up here is Romans eight twenty-six and 27 and this is uh, what the spirit's doing for us uh, like I said when we're asleep and uh, sometimes even right now we don't even know what's happening but Satan knows how powerful sleep is, so he tries to steal that from us, not so that we're tired, but so the spirit can't work in that uh, healing of the subconscious, as also uh, in our prayer time. It's odd that when we get ready to pray, every distraction that can come, does come, and um, sometimes we, our mind starts to wander when we're trying to pray, Those are all tactics of the enemy because this is when it's all happening. So when we don't even know what we should pray for, and sometimes we don't know where it's coming from. You know, when we come to this seminar looking to say, can you just pin it right down to what it is I need? And I can't. You know, uh, there's tools that we can use to get close, but we can't. But the Spirit, thank God, the Holy Spirit knows when we don't even know what to pray for, but the Spirit does. So when we just take that time to get alone with God, even if you pass out asleep, y'all acting like that never happens to me. I'm all about 30 straight minutes of shambha, Well, You passed out before, haven't you? I'll admit it. I've laid down before the Lord, I got some pressing things on my heart. And I was gone and woke up like, oh, man, I'm late for an appointment. So they say, what were you doing while I was laying before the Lord? (laughs) But, you know, even in those times, even though we're not verbalizing anything or praying in the spirit, we could be completely out. Uh, Devil will use that as guilt, saying, you know, here, you were going to pray. Look at you. You slept. But sleep is, didn't I just tell you, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It really is. So sometimes when you just pass out asleep in prayer time, he's praying through you. And uh, like he'll say to the father, okay, I got him out of the way so I can tell you the truth. And here's what they need. And he begins to make intercession uh, with groanings which cannot be uttered. So in the past we interpreted this when when we're praying and we get to that groaning and utterings, But it's the spirit. Notice it's the spirit groaning. And so there's, he's, the Holy Spirit is feeling what we feel, experiencing what we have experienced, and he's verbalizing it in prayer, and healing begins to take place. So that word infirmities, uh, it looks like, you know, we say infirmary, like it's a sickness, but it actually translates weaknesses, or the word is cripplings. That is things that have crippled us. Uh, emotionally and physically and weaknesses so the Holy Spirit's job is that so in part of this healing process it has to do with forgiving it has to do with allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work through sleep and through prayer and not just praying consciously But we do pray consciously. I take my request before the Lord. I I intercede on behalf of my children, my friends, the campuses. And then there's a point where he moves me out of the way and begins to work through me to actually communicate the deeper things. And so I have to literally schedule sleep time. That sounds odd, but I'm going to be in bed by 9 or 10 if I possibly can. I mean, there's always things that happen that take place but I'm going to get my sleep and I'm going to schedule prayer time in and that's going to be a regular basis where God can expect me at a certain period of time to meet him and, and just like he did set the pattern in Genesis when he said he met them in the cool of the day it was a regular routine visit scheduled visit between God and man and so we have to have that as well. And training ourselves. So I'm going to forgive, I'm going to sleep, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit have an opportunity when I attempt to pray. All right, And those are areas that the devil fights us with because when prayer time comes, phones ring and everything else. Uh, some of the signs, uh, pattern, uh, page 21, some of the patterns that may be uh, prevalent, that indicate what type of parent we might have had. And again, there's no blame on anybody because I certainly am not a perfect parent. And there are no such things as perfect parents. So I don't want to get lost in talking about what they should have done, didn't do, because they did the best that they could with what they had. Sometimes they just didn't know. Sometimes they were dealing with hurts. And uh, sometimes there were other pressures that didn't allow them. But if it happened, this might be some of the things that result. So on one side, if you had a perfectionist parent, then generally that child will become preoccupied uh, with performance in everything. Uh, frustrated when you don't get the A, comparing yourself with everybody else. Let me see what you got type of stuff. Oversubmissive parents uh, causes children to be trigger-tempered. So if you are quick to anger... And over things, inconsiderate of rights, uh, find yourself beating your steering wheel in traffic. <laughs> it might have been an over-submissive parent. <clears throat> Over-indulgent parent, that means uh, you're bored, you can't initiate anything, can't get started. If you're given something, you start it, but you can't carry it through. Uh, punitive causes children to be fiercely vengeful. Neglectful parents makes us anxious, lonely, unable to feel close to others. And sexually stimulating, uh, that would be on the very extreme side, causes uh, children to become obsessed with physical sex and dissatisfied with personal relationships. And so those that have multiple serial relationships all through their adult life, they had uh, started usually with maybe something aberrant uh, in the parents. Um, in page 22, there's a, uh, right in the middle, it's in capital letter, letters, it says uh, overeating or eating disorders, uh, they call it food hunger, uh, or love hunger, and, uh, it's kind of summed up in that phrase that if your heart is empty, your stomach feels empty. And so remember how the soul can't verbalize. But it speaks at a different level. And so sometimes when we're always hungry um, or we eat under stress or every time we get in a situation that we turn to food uh, or a relationship's going bad and we turn to food, that's because the heart is empty. And in order for the soul to talk about it, it manifested in the physical and so it doesn't mean that if we're obese that we have an eating disorder because I've seen people skinny as a rail that ate more than anybody else. <laughs> I mean, they just ate. <clears throat> I'd be like, wow. <laughs> you want my? You want, the, you want these? Okay, have the french fries. You know, go for it. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Now, if I eat them, I'm going to blow up five pounds. They ate them. They look the same. But a lot of times when there's, when there's that chronic issue, It's a sign of an empty heart. So just remember, there's things that are going on that are not verbal, but that they do speak about uh, hunger for love. And so no place is it better than in the church. Because, you know, in here, when we talk about the term God's unconditional love, you realize that there's nothing you can do to make God not love you. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about once saved, always saved. Because there's a lot of people that went to hell that God loved and still loves. So it means that nothing you can ever do to God or do in life will ever make God not love you. And that's how we really are in the home. If you're a, a parent, you realize there's nothing your child can ever do to make you stop loving them. Now, you might want to administer some discipline. You might be very upset with them. You might be very angry with them. You might corral them. But you love them. There's nothing, nothing they can do to make you stop loving them. And God ministers that in the church. And when we realize that we can teach that to people, that there's nothing you can ever do or have done that makes God love you less, it begins to release people uh, from their damaged emotions. And so we have to teach the love of God. We have to maintain the rules because God has rules and they're all listed here in the Bible. If they weren't important, he wouldn't have given them to us. We have to teach those. But beside that, if we fail, he still loves us. And it's the same with the home. We teach that to our children. Um, Page 25, there's this phrase right in the middle It says, are you the family scapegoat? In some families, there's the scapegoat. All right, this goes back to the book of Leviticus when there was the trespass offering and uh, Israel came together. Today they call it Yom Kippur. It's a holiday that generally takes place sometime in October. And it's the one day that... Jewish people can be forgiven of all of their sins. Okay, so uh, they can be forgiven as they in the old days through the sacrifices. But since that's gone, they rely on Yom Kippur. So you got to stay alive to Yom Kippur, <laughs> and it's the one day. If you've ever been to a Jewish synagogue any day but Yom Kippur, you'll wonder why do these people even. Keep the doors open. There's about five or six people in there in a building that would hold 500. But on Yom Kippur, you can't, you can't find a parking place. They're all there because that's the one day all their sins can be forgiven. So in the old days, in the Old Testament, they would all gather in Jerusalem and then the priest would come out and he would list all of the sins of all the people and he would place his hands upon the head of a goat and literally transfer all of their sins onto the head of that goat. That was called the scapegoat. Then they would pick that goat up and carry it out into the wilderness and release it into the wilderness to either die of starvation, be eaten by a beast, but it was gone. So all the sins were gone for a year. Now, in families, some families individuals or a individual can be selected to be the scapegoat. And if it's you, God bless you. (laughs) Because it's probably the one thing that will lead you to Jesus faster than anything. Because nobody else wants to talk to you. The family. Because everything is your fault. It's always you. If you had not done. If you had done. And you always felt guilty. You were the one everybody dumped everything on. And it becomes the scapegoat, the one who acts out. And here's how it works uh, in an addiction, an addicted family. So let's just take alcoholic family. You have, uh, and just for the sake of explanation, let's say the dad's the alcoholic and the mom is the, the non-alcoholic. But truly, she's what keeps him doing what he does. Because he can't make it to work because he drinks, so she works three jobs to pay the bills, gripes about him all the time, but the truth is she's keeping him going. So she's helping him. So at some point in time, she reaches a point where she just hates him and can't go on anymore. Maybe she's gotten with some of the sisters and they've told her, you need to lose that man, he needs to go. So you've decided you're going to leave, so you start to leave, making plans to leave. And then all of a sudden, the one child acts out, throws a rock through a window, throws a rock at a car, goes down with a group of kids, steals something from somewhere, gets in trouble with the law, and then all of a sudden or falls and breaks a bone, any number of things. And so all of a sudden you call daddy, you get together, you run, you take care of junior. And then junior recovers or pays his debt to the city, etc. and now you two are together again because of the scapegoat. So see, and then all of a sudden, uh, now you're starting to break up again. Guess what Junior does? Because Junior's been assigned the job yes. to keep the marriage together. Yes. And so I will break the law. I will do bad stuff. I will get sick. <clears throat> I will break something. I will fight at school. I will let my gla- grades plummet because I've got to do whatever i got to do. To keep you two together and that's a scapegoat and sometimes in families you can be labeled as the one so you always the bad one or you know someone who is in your family and that's a very harsh thing for a child to have to grow up with <clears throat> and um, once they have met the Savior Jesus and understand that the scapegoat has already been paid on the cross it releases them from Having to be a part of that a lot of times they stay in those families because there is no other options So when the church becomes their family You see then they can leave Father and mother and find a home in the house of God it behooves us as the people of the church to be healthy And uh, not perfect trust me. We're still going to have our fallen outs. We're still going to have our attitudes We're still going to have our moments and uh, I wonder who he's talking about. You know, those things. We're always going to have that because we're brothers and sisters, cousins, nieces, nephews, uncles, right? Danielle. <laughs> my niece. But we're all family, so we're going to have our little issues. But because we're healthy enough, we work them out. Then God can send people here to see what a real family looks like. And so really we're here. I'm just coming here to worship Jesus. True but you're also here to show the world how we're supposed to relate instead of every six months moving on to another church. Page 27, and we'll be out of here just shortly. Uh, page 27, uh, seeing the need. And this is uh, in Genesis 37, 19 through 28. Uh, that's the story of Joseph. And I think you know the story of how you know, he was sold by his brothers and he got where he got and in the end when he realizes that all that took place for this purpose he was saying what you meant for harm God meant for good and this is called reframing reframing and this is what we need to do when we recognize there's some damaged emotions is we've got to take a look at the past and put a new frame on it okay because he could have easily been bitter resentful, hateful, and told them when they showed up, he goes, you think you're living here after what you did to me? Uh-uh, get out of here. Or imprisoned them. He could have done any number of things, but see, he reframed it. He said, what you all meant for evil, God meant for good. See, that's reframing it. So reframing is is when you have a picture in your house and it's just not really popping And you say, well, let me get a new picture, or better yet, let me go look for a new frame. So you find a new frame that might have some different colors in it that accentuates the picture. Thank you. But you put a new frame on it, and all of a sudden that picture that wasn't really doing anything suddenly comes alive. That's reframing. And uh, that's the story that's kind of here in the middle. It says a man walked into a tapestry shop and asked for the most beautiful one he wanted for his house. So the clerk pointed overhead and said, Well, the one I hung up here is the most beautiful. Well, when the man looked up, he saw all those little tangled ropes. And he said, That looks like a mess. And he said, Oh, I'm sorry, your perspective is wrong. So he took him up the balcony and he said, Look down. And when he looked down, he saw the most beautiful piece of art that he'd ever seen. But from here up, it looked like a mess. But from up there looking down, it was absolutely gorgeous. And so the idea is, is that when you look at your life and your past, sometimes from your standpoint, it looks like a horrible, wretched, painful mess. But when you get up with Christ, as Colossians said, and seated with him in heavenly places, and you look down, now you're seeing your life as God sees it, which is completely different. He looks and sees what a beautiful piece of artwork he has created, fearfully and wonderfully made. Whereas we've been looking at it from here up. You see, and it looks like a mess. So we can't get connected with God because he's seeing one way, we've seen it in another. So what I'm saying is, is you've got to reframe it. You have to retrain yourself about your past. I'm not minimizing your past. But can I tell you, it's gone. It's over. I'm very sorry you went through it. I really am. I wish things would have been different for you. But it's gone. It's over with. It's finished. It's not going to happen anymore. You're in control. God has saved you. Now, what I want you to do is go back to it and put a new frame on it. And start to look at it, as painful as it may be, as now your journey to where you are now. Had that not happened, you might not have never met the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may have never been driven to the point where you were seeking out help and found Jesus as your Savior and the Holy Spirit as your your healer. And so as you begin to reframe it, you really want to be vengeful and hurtful. But you start to put a new frame on it and say like Joseph did, his brothers sold him into slavery. His dad didn't even know what was going on. He was out there rejected, painfully rejected, sent to really die. They didn't think he was going to live. They wanted him to die. And yet he reframed it. You talk about abuse. He was abused. He put a new frame on it and decided that, you know what, I can't do anything about that. But I can do something about the way I interpret it now. So I'm going to interpret it differently. I'm going to quit looking at it as poor, pitiful me. And I'm going to say, thank God. Did you hear what I just said? Thank God. I forgive them. And I reframe it. And may I see what you see, God. Trust in what he sees as I told you earlier the word justification is a legal term that means you've been declared by the court of heaven that you are now in right relationship with God as if you had done nothing wrong I know better but God is looking at it from justification now we have to see what the Holy Spirit sees as the finished product that he sees us as that beautiful tapestry complete, fulfilled, and perfect in the eyes of God. Can you see that? Can you close your eyes for just a moment and see? See that? Surprising that I'm worthful, not worthy, trust me, Ain't none of us in here worthy. But we are worth full. Totally accepted by the beloved. Perfect in his eyes. Not a blemish on his bride. As if nothing had ever happened to you at all. That's how God sees you. Needing you to step up. Fulfill your purpose and your destiny. Shaking off all of those things that have to do with the past. And being healed by the Holy Spirit in our emotions. Okay, are there any questions? That issue about the inner vows is on page 29. In case you wanted some scriptures uh, to use. On page 30 is the honoring of your parents. Remember that we are deeply affected as adults by how we view them. It's the only only commandment that has a promise with it. That if you do this, life will be well with you. And uh, sometimes if life isn't well, that would be an area I would look at. How I view my parents, my attitude towards them. And what do I need to do to reframe All right. Yes. Yes. No judgment. I can honestly say there's some things that my parents didn't do right looking back. But I don't hold them in judgment for it. I understand the circumstances. I understand the times we were living in. Yeah. And it wasn't personal. And I release them from any offense that I have. Um, for your homework, you can do, on page 39, is uh, how you can begin to pray, and uh, each day what you need to do. These are the steps for post-prayer instructions on uh, maintaining what we call deliverance from, he, uh, from uh, damaged emotions, and that sometimes part of it is you've got to change who you hang out with at work, and... Uh, because they might not be healthy for you.